Welcome to From the Front Porch, a conversational podcast about books, small business, and life in the South. How much could forgiving someone matter if they were already gone? Cat shook, if we're being honest. I'm Annie Jones, owner of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in beautiful downtown Thomasville, Georgia. And this week, I'm joined by Bookshelf Floor Manager Olivia Schaefer and Online Sales Manager Aaron Fielding to give you a rundown of our favorite new books releasing in April. Do you love listening to From the Front Porch every week? Spread the word by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open up the podcast app on your phone, look for From the Front Porch, scroll down until you see Write a Review, and then tell us what you think. Here is a recent review from, hope I'm pronouncing this right, Carrier Jair. Well-rounded and informative. As a male author, I found the perspectives and insights surprisingly practical, not to mention full of depth from many angles. I expected the Southern billing to be too narrow in its scope, but what I found was the Southern hospitality included even me. I love that they have such a huge palette of interests and suggestions. It helps to know which books are passing the mustard these days. Thank you so much for this feedback. I am so glad our Southern hospitality extends to you because that's certainly the intent. And thank you to all the reviewers who've left kind words and thoughtful reviews over the last few months. We're so grateful anytime you share From the Front Porch with your friends. It helps spread the word about not only our podcast, but also about our independent bookstore. Now, back to the show. As we go through April's new releases, keep in mind that Erin has made browsing our podcast book selections easier than ever. Just go to bookshelfthomasville.com and type episode 419 into the search bar, and you'll see all of today's books listed ready for you to purchase. You can use the code NEWRELEASEPLEASE at checkout for 10% off your order of any of today's titles. Hi, Olivia and Erin. Hey. Hello. Welcome back. Can you believe we're talking about April books? No. No, but I'm so excited. (laughs) I said this at um, Literary Lunch in store this week that I feel like spring is a really fun time for books. I know fall is a huge publishing season, but sometimes fall is almost overwhelming in how many books there are. I feel like spring, there's like summer is on the horizon, which feels like maybe it's my imagination, but feels like there will be more free time. <laughs> I hope there will be more <laughs> <laughs> I all the books that are coming out. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm excited as well. So, okay. Typically, these episodes last a long time. So we're going to get started. Do y'all have five books? I did not count. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Everybody has five. Okay. So I'll kick us off with this new book by member of the Bengals, Susanna Hoffs. She has written a book called This Bird Has Flown. It released this week on April 4th. So I liked it. I think some people are going to love it. This book is about Jane. Jane is a musician who has had better days. She's she's kind of waning in popularity. She had more or less kind of a one-hit wonder that was written by this other guy who she toured with a little bit. And she's really struggling to find her footing. And her friend and agent encourages her to fly to London where she can kind of have a fresh start and have a writing session and maybe maybe even put out a new album. So Jane gets on a plane and she is seated next to 
Tom Hardy. Not that Tom Hardy. It's a whole big joke. It's not, it's not, it's not that Tom Hardy is an Oxford professor. He's got like elbow patches on his coat. And of course, they kind of hit it off. And when they land in London, they wind up embarking on this kind of romance. So there's, to me, a couple of things happening in this book. The first is Jane's music career and trying to navigate midlife and what happens post-success. I thought that was what worked best about the novel, and it's what I liked the most about the novel. Then you have kind of this steamy, not kind of, a very steamy romance between mm-hmm. Tom and Jane. This is the part of the book that I think other people will really love. And I kind of skipped some pages and was like, okay, that's interesting. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then the third part of the book is that some of what transpires between Jane and Tom and some other characters in the book is very much Jane Eyre inspired. And I picked up on that a little bit later through the book and all of a sudden was like, wait a second. And then I flipped to the back. I was reading an ARC and it said, Bridget Jones meets Jane Eyre. And I was like, oh, (laughs) which I did not, I had not read the blurbs before picking this book up. So that is a very accurate description of what is happening in this book. And it's why I think maybe I just liked it, but I think other people will love it. There is a really lovely, I always like reading the acknowledgements. There's a lovely acknowledgement section where Susanna Hoffs kind of talks about how classic literature and being a reader kind of shaped her life and shaped her storytelling. And so you can definitely see some of those influences in the book. I think it's worth picking up and throwing in your beach bag this spring. That is This Bird Has Flown by Susanna Hoffs, and it released this week. Did you know Susanna Hoffs' name just from the Bengals, like right off the bat, or did they say it somewhere? They said it somewhere. No way. Okay, I, I was like, I would have never. Like, <laughs> I can't even name a Bengals song right now. <laughs> no, I like. I know the Bengals. This is this is going to age me. There are going to be people who are rolling their eyes at us because they are older than us. And I know the Bengals because of Gilmore Girls, because of the scene. Mm. But then also, if you listen, like, I feel like everybody knows a Bengals song, but you don't know that it's the Bengals. That's is true. I feel about things. that. Um, but I did not know. I would not have known her name as a member of the Bengals, except I'm pretty sure it's on the back cover. (laughs) Okay. Makes me feel a little bit better. (laughs) Okay. My first book I'm so excited about is Panther Gap by James A. McLaughlin. And this is out April 4th. This is like a follow-up, almost companion novel to Bearskin, which came out in 2018. So for all of those who are wondering if you need to read Bearskin beforehand, I read Bearskin in 2018, can't remember a single thing from it, and thoroughly enjoyed this book. I'm good. <laughs> a five-year gap between novels is quite a gap. <laughs> it is. It's like the new season of Ted Lasso. I'm like, wait a minute, what? Like, what it's just when there's Where so many. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anymore. Yeah. And the the character from Bearskin really only pops in at, towards the very end of this. This is for people who I think like Peter Heller, like who wrote The Current, Tim Johnston, like that type of just like nitty gritty nature writing. It's about these two siblings, Bowman and Summer, and they grew up in Panther Gap, this like crevice of a land, I don't know, up in like (laughs) Wyoming, but their family had owned it for generations and generations. And so they've just been maintaining it. But then Bowman and Summer are about to inherit like a huge amount of money after their grandfather passes. 
but they don't realize that this money is like connected to the cartel. Well, Bowman realizes this because he has gotten tangled with it through his father's misdoings. (laughs) Um, But Bowman is this character who like, if you've ever read CJ Box or like watched Joe Pickett, mm, not really watched Joe Pickett. This character is not the same in the show. But (laughs) he's like Nate Romanansky. I know a certain like sect of people are going to get that reference. (laughs) But if you get that reference, (laughs) it is like, it's dead on in the best way possible. Bowman is just like one with nature. He's into a lot of like indigenous folk tales about like men being wolves or becoming panthers and like jaguars. And so like as a child, he had this eagle and he would wear this wolf pelt and throw Mm. chicken over his back so that the eagle would like attack him, but eat the chicken. Like it was the way of feeding Mm. the eagle. And so Bowman just started becoming like one with this wolf. Like he thought he was becoming a wolf. And this is done in like the most, uh, I don't know how to put it. Like it, it's, it doesn't ever feel corny in the book. Mm-hmm. You're just like, wow, Bowman is just like this. He's meant to be out in the wilderness on his own. Mm-hmm. And then he gets called back by his sister Summer when they start inheriting this money. And Bowman's like, this isn't a good idea. But Summer mm-hmm. needs the money to maintain Panther Gap. Um, so it's this slow burn of a thriller. But it was a five-star book for me. It was so well done. And listen, I live on a plantation now. I read looking out into woods. So like it might be just a setting, but like I also love like Peter Heller and like CJ Box and books like that. And this was just like right up my alley, but it is so well done. The relationship between the siblings is like, Mm. I could talk about that for hours. (laughs) That's good. I won't. I do love a good book with Interesting character names and yeah, Bowman. Bowman is a That's great, great name. <laughs> yeah. It's a good name. Yeah. All right. My first pick is one that everybody, I think a lot of people already know about. It's Homecoming by Kate Morton. This is, uh, I will call it historical fiction meets mystery, like a little bit of a murder mystery. Um, it's set in Australia in 1959 and also it jumps to the present in 2018. So it's got that alternating timeline you know, storytelling plot that a lot of people love. I also laugh, like, this is the third book I've read in 2023 alone about Australia. And I'm like, is Australia, did they get a new marketing, like, manager? <laughs> they are doing a all great job. <laughs> Just all of Australia. I don't know what they're doing down there, but they're making some great books. <laughs> I don't think Kate Morton herself is Australian, but Australia is really having its moment, I think, in literature. Um, but Australia this, is like the mushroom. I feel yeah, like mushrooms exactly. are having it's a moment. It's season. Australia is trendy. Um, this book opens in a way that, like, it grabbed me from the beginning because it opens on, and, like, within a, the first few chapters, you realize that their whole family has died. And somebody comes upon them. It's like a mother and her three children and you don't know why. And it doesn't Mm. look like there's been foul play. So it's very confusing. So you're like, Oh, I've got to find out what happens. (laughs) Like I'm not Mm -hmm. spoiling anything. That's, that's literally in the first few chapters. And we jump to the present, which is 2018 where a character named Jess is like a, I would call her like a journalist that is kind of down on her luck and is out of a job. 
she is from Australia. She was raised by her grandmother in Australia and she gets called that her grandmother has fallen from like her attic stairs. And she is like, why would, why would my grandmother have been in the attic? I don't understand (laughs) that. So she flies home. Her grandmother is saying a lot of things that aren't making sense. Like she's in the hospital. And while she's there, Jess is exploring the home that she grew up with in her, with her grandmother. And so she's looking for clues about why her grandmother was up in the attic, first of all. And as she's looking through the house, she realizes that there's this book there that connects her family to this murder back in 1959. And so she's now trying to uncover what happened to her grandmother, what happened to this family back in 1959. And you do jump back and forth. So you go almost like back in the 1959 timeline, you're kind of, you're starting with this tragedy and then you're going back and finding out like what led up to it, which is a plot device I just love because you already know what happens, but then you're like, but why, why did it happen? (laughs) Um, It is 560 pages long guys. So do you think it could have been edited? There's quite a bit of buildup that in my opinion, isn't necessary. I think it definitely could have been shorter, but I think the mystery and I think the family dynamics in this book will help readers want to persist throughout the whole book. Okay. I am curious. I used to read a lot of Kate Morton, like in my pre-Bookshelf Life or maybe early, like when I was manager at Bookshelf Tallahassee. Yeah. And I really liked everything Mm -hmm. I read by her, honestly. But I think in my book selling life, that page count is a hard... Uh, yes, and all of hers are like that. They're yes. thick books. <laughs> yeah, they're thick. Um, but I, but I am intrigued by this one. I might pick yeah. it up. I don't know. It, it was good. Okay, my next one released this week. It's "The House Is on Fire." This is by Rachel Beanland. She wrote "Florence Adler Swims Forever," which is a book I really loved and one of the few books that captured my attention during the summer of 2020. And I really liked it. I think it was one of my shelf subscription titles. So this is a departure from that. Um, but I heard an interview with Rachel Beanland that actually is what made me want to pick this one up, where she was talking about while she was doing research. I don't know if it was for Florence Adler or another novel. Um, But basically, I think she wound up moving. Maybe that's what it was. She wound up moving to Richmond, Virginia. And like on the tour of the town, (laughs) somebody told her, oh, yeah, that's the theater that burned down. And, you know, she's an author. And she was like, wait, what? And so she wound up doing a lot of research on the Richmond fire of 1811, the Richmond theater fire. So this is a fire that occurred in Richmond where the theater in town kind of completely burned down. And so this book is set, I believe, on December 26th. So I'm a little intrigued by the spring release date, but never you mind. Uh, So the the fire took place around Christmas, and that is when the book takes place. It takes place almost, at least the the parts that I have read thus far, take place entirely on the night of the fire. And you watch everybody... And you know the fire is going to happen, but you watch like everybody walking to the theater and you get all these different characters leading up to the fire. And then the fire happens and you see these different characters and how they were affected, how some of them became heroes in that moment. Some of them fled in that moment and left other people to die. So she tells it from a variety of characters' perspectives. And then talks about, and I have not gotten to this part in the novel yet, but my understanding is then some of the novel does take place kind of after the fact and the long-term effects of the heroicism or the lack thereof. And 
particularly dealing with um, a couple of characters, including one who was formerly enslaved. And what does his life look like after he kind of makes heroic efforts to save some people who probably definitely would not have saved him, you know? Mm. And so she she deals with some of that. The What I've read so far is really good. It is clearly well-researched. I think book clubs will really like this. I think fans of Fiona Davis will really like it, where it's historical fiction, but it's outside. And look, there are some really wonderful historical fiction books about World War II. I'm not diminishing that. But if you are a little fatigued maybe by historical fiction that kind of all sounds the same or all is dealing with same, the same types of stories, I think this will be appealing to you. I think it will especially be of interest if you, we have, weirdly, we have several customers who have lived in Virginia before and so, um, or who are living there, some of our long distance customers are living there now. So if you live in Virginia, if you live in Richmond, I think this will have particular interest, perhaps even if you just live in the South. But I I appreciate the work that Rachel Beanland has done on this novel. And I like that it's a little bit of a departure from maybe your typical historical fiction. So this is called The House is on Fire by Rachel Beanland. It came out this week. That one sounds really good. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Okay, going into middle grade. Uh, my next one is Once There Was by Kiyosh Monsef, and this comes out April 4th. And this is for everybody who liked Fantastic Beasts, but maybe wanted something a little bit with more depth to it. Hmm. Um, <laughs> which Fantastic Beasts was great, but it treated the animals with like a sense of humor, whereas this book has like such respect for it. Hmm. This is about this Iranian-American 15-year-old girl, Marjan, and she just lost her father. Um, in fact, her guardian is now her, like, elderly neighbor, but she gets to stay in her house, and the neighbor just will, like, leave pizza on her door to make sure she's fed, like, randomly, and then, like, whenever she sees her, she's just like, you're not on drugs, right? And Marjan's always like, no drugs, and then they just, like, carry on. It's a really Every cute relationship. Dream. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just to yeah. live in a house by themselves with pizza. <laughs> right. <laughs> but Marjan's father owned this veterinary clinic. And he would like go off on these trips, which she assumed was to like help other animals outside of there. But once he passes, she gets this mysterious visitor at the vet because she also helps out there. I mean, she's 15. She's very mature, which is why I think this is like older middle grade, almost like I could easily sell this to YA easily. Mm -hmm. Um, And they would never think twice about the age range of it. But she realizes after this mysterious stranger comes to visit her that her father has been going on trips to heal these like mythical animals, these mythical creatures all around the world. Mm -hmm. And so like the first one she heals is a griffin. But what's great is that after these people start coming to her, bringing them her animals to help you know, heal them and whatnot, you'll meet the animal in the situation they're in. And then the next chapter is the Persian fairy tale of how this animal came to be. And there are all these tales that her dad would tell her at night, which is how she like learned all this information about them without even realizing it. Mm. Um, So she kind of takes the place of what her father was doing but then she finds out that like the there's two groups of people who are trying to manage these mythical creatures and both of them are corrupt in different ways and she's kind of caught in the middle of like how how do we best treat these animals because like Marjan is a girl who like she'll look like a dangerous creature that like only does bad things and see where it's hurt and still want to help it 
She's so mm-hmm. good and she's so caring and she has such respect for them that like these institutions don't. And so mm-hmm. she tries to like face them head on. This book is so well done. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't stress that enough. Like it didn't <laughs> ever read like middle grade to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was shocked mm-hmm. to learn that it's like a 10 and up middle grade book because oh, yeah. mm-hmm. it, not that anything explicit happens to her but it's just the maturity level of Marjan dealing with these animals and helping mm-hmm. these people. And like the, the writing was just so well done. It was really, really good. Five stars. Yay. <laughs> Two five stars in a row for you. No. Um, almost all of the five star books that I've read this year are out in April. So oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good <laughs> all right. My next book is, um, it's a little bit darker, a little bit deeper. This is The Double Life of Ben Sen Yu by Kevin Chong. It comes out April 18th. This is really outside what I would normally read, but the cover is so kind of mm-hmm. colorful and fun. It drew me in. <laughs> but this book does, this book literally comes with a trigger warning. Like there is a trigger warning inside the book oh. before you start reading it. But it's okay. it's about Ben Sen Yu. He's a comic book author who is... Um, struggling with depression, struggling with anxiety, and it stems from some childhood abuse that took place in his life at the hands of his karate coach. And he, you know, is a, he's doing well as an author, but he's just mentally, he's not doing well. And he gets a letter from the karate coach basically saying like, one of the characters in your comic book is so reminiscent of me and says the things that I said that I think you need to pay me money um, because uh, like you're basically using me as a character and I think I, you owe me money. So he's dealing with not only like this perpetrator reaching out to him, but also that his demand for money. Mm-hmm. And so he decides, you know what, I'm going to write a different book about a completely different character. So he writes this book about a boy named Benny who lives in Chinatown in the 1980s. And there's a whole another cast of characters in that book. So this book is not for everyone. There's a multiverse. There's different versions of Benson throughout the years. Like there's him as this Benny. There's him as his current self. There's him as a father to his younger self. So again, I think this is one of those books, like if you read it, it uh, a lot of reviews were like, you're not going to enjoy this book. Um, I mean, it's not one of those books you're going to read and be like, "Woo, that was such a great book. But the way that they deal with such deep topics about suicide about abuse about all these things uh, is is beautiful in seeing the way that this comic book author this fictional character sort of finds ways to deal with that in an external way so Mm. um, like I said it's it's not for everyone but I think that people will be interested in the way to see how this author deals with these characters pain and they sort of like take it and put it externally Mm. you know through comic books through art and, you know, we've seen characters do that before in books. And so I just think that's that's an interesting way to show what someone's going through. So it's The, the Double Life of Vincent You out April 18th. I wonder if people who liked Everything Everywhere All at Once might like that book. I think so. I think it's a little bit darker topic-wise. But mm-hmm. um, I do think if you have the brain for, like, you know, being able to comprehend a multiverse and like which character yeah. is this and what timeline are they in? And that's really up your alley. I think that people would find this fascinating. Okay. My next one is not set in the multiverse. It is Pomegranate by Helen Elaine Lee. 
This book releases next week, and I really loved it because of our main character. So the main character's name is Renita. Renita has spent the last four years in a correctional facility where she was doing time for um, opiate possession. And she, while in prison, fell in love and has become sober. And so when she leaves um, the facility, her goal is to kind of rebuild the life that she lost and to receive custody of her two children and kind of to regain their trust. So the book is told in part in Renita's first person voice as she leaves prison, starts to go to therapy, tries to prove herself to the system so that she can get her kids back. And then, and also to prove herself to her aunts, um, who kind of helped raise her and became really disappointed in what happened to her. Okay, and then the other portions of the book are told in third person as we look back at how Renita became who she is and how she became addicted to drugs, kind of the path that she took, some of the emotional abuse that was inflicted on her in childhood. And all of that, I think, is fascinatingly told through third person. So I think the book is really playing with memory and who we once were and how we become who we are. This book is not necessarily what I would call plot-driven, although certainly you follow Renita as she's trying to resettle and regroup, but it is really Renita's story and her character development. It's a father-daughter story. She has a really loving, lovely relationship with her dad. It is about addiction, and certainly it is a lot about the criminal justice system and the prison system. And then when people leave the prison system, what resources they are and are not given to cope with the outside world. And I found Renita's struggles for sobriety to be particularly compelling. You know, I hesitate to say the word heartbreaking because actually what Helen Elaine Lee has done is created a really strong, resilient character. So I don't feel, I don't ever feel pity for Renita. She's strong and she's tough and she's determined, but I certainly feel an empathy for her. And once I started the book, I could not put it down because I really Mm -hmm. wanted to know what happened to her. I was very invested in her story. I loved the storytelling mechanisms that Helen Elaine Lee used. I loved the first person narration, but also then going back in time and looking at who Renita was through the third person. Um, I thought that was really smart and clever. Mm -hmm. I just really liked this book. And I think I read the acknowledgments and it sounded to me like Helen Elaine Lee had done a lot of work in the prison system, perhaps through teaching writing workshops or um, things like that. And I think you can tell that she really, I think, writes about this women's prison in a really, really nuanced, thoughtful way where I was compelled by a lot of the women characters. I think I would have loved even to have gotten even more about the women that Renita met in prison. Um, and the relationships that she developed there, particularly a relationship, she fell in love with a fellow inmate and kind of what the love between them looked like. I really liked this book a lot. I think other readers will too, um, particularly if you liked mm, Tayari Jones's American Marriage. Uh, that is a book that comes to mind. Yeah, maybe Orange is the New Black, not the show, but the memoir. <laughs> there might be some similarities there. So anyway, it's called Pomegranate. It's by Helen Elaine Lee, and it is out next Tuesday. She has a great author name. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yes, she does. I'm curious what pomegranate, like, is that a part of the story or is pomegranate used as a metaphor for something? It's part of the story. It's a okay. part of, it's something she and her dad share. And it is, it's a beautiful, oh. it winds up being a really beautiful title to the book. Oh, good. I love that. Okay. We're back to adult now for me. 
<laughs> this next one is Symphony of Secrets by Brendan Slocum out April 18th. This is his second book. His first one was Violin Conspiracy, which Shop Dad and I both loved. I actually think I loved this one even more. It was just so good. And it grabs you right from the start. It has dual timelines, which normally I hate. <laughs> um, but in this book, I I don't know. He did it so well. <laughs> like I couldn't hate it. And I think it was each timeline had such a competing plot mm-hmm. that I was drawn to both ends of the plot. So in the first part, present day, we meet a man, Bern Hendricks. And Bern is a musicologist who has studied this composer, Fred Delaney. He like went to this like Delaney foundation as a child to like get his education and whatnot. And now he like teaches his work at a college level. But Bern gets this phone call from a woman who works for the Delaney foundation because they just found a missing composition out of nowhere. It's this infamous composition called Red because Fred had done a whole like song for each of the rings of the Olympics. And Red was the only one that like, it was known that like he lost the original and when he rewrote it and finally debuted it, it was terrible. Like the audience just walked out of the theater. And at this point it was like his climax of like his rise to fame. And then he just plummeted. And so the foundation recently found the original composition of red and they hired burn to put it together so that he could put it on an orchestra. Mm -hmm. So then we go back in time and we see Fred and his like upcoming rise to fame, but we meet him first. He's playing in this little like dive band and they're about to kick him out of the band because he's (laughs) so terrible. But this woman, Josephine, who just like sits there in the bar and like loves listening to music starts to coach him on his piano skills. And Josephine is this like, musical savant like she's incredible Mm -hmm. but you can tell that like she definitely lives on the autism spectrum somewhere Mm -hmm. like she sees music as colors Mm -hmm. and that's how she vocalizes it so like when she tells Fred he's playing something wrong she's like the the red isn't the right shade I don't know I'm not gonna try (laughs) to but um you see Fred and Josephine form this like bond together where like he starts to you know, pay her to be his, his coach, his piano coach. Mm -hmm. And then he realizes that she's living on the street and she's a black woman in the 1920s and things are not going Mm -hmm. well for her. And a a black woman living with autism in the 1920s, like that's Mm -hmm. the intersectionality there is out of this world. And so he takes her and he lets her stay in the apartment. And then he realizes that she can compose music And Mm -hmm. so you slowly see this corruption start happening in their relationship. And Burn, on the parallel side of this, is looking at this piece of music and starting to, like, put together pieces that, like, this seems a little bit different than what Fred Mm -hmm. normally does. Mm -hmm. And he starts to investigate, but the foundation clearly does not want that to happen. Hmm. It is so well done. It was so much fun of a read, too. Like, you just you flew through it because the chapters were short and the characters were uh, addicting to read about. It was great. Hmm. That does sound that sounds really good. Um, my next one is one I'm really excited about hand selling. It's Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club by Jay Ryan. And I looked up how to pronounce his last name. Cause I was oh, like, good. I really want to know. He, he says it's straw duel, like straddle, 
straddle. Oh, okay. <laughs> so okay. I've been saying straddle my whole life. It's yep. straddle. Me too. Straddle. <laughs> um, but he, I mean, I'm a total fan of his. His first book, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, is really the first book. I really call it like the first book, one of the first books I read at like right out of college. So one of my first sort of adult books, mm. you know what I mean? Like being an adult, not being in college, just working at my job, picking up books to read for fun. Kitchens of the Great Midwest was one of the first ones I picked up and it was so good. And it sent me on this trajectory where I just love to follow his works. And I've read all of his other ones. The Lager Queens of Minnesota is a fantastic too. This one does not disappoint. It's so good. Um, as with his other books, it focuses on these sort of multi-generational family in the Midwest, um, as to be expected in Minnesota. The main character, Mariel, is working at the Lakeside Supper Club in Bear Jaw Lake, Minnesota. She inherits it from her grandmother because her mother doesn't want anything to do with it. Her mother doesn't want to be a part of that life, doesn't want to own it. And so it comes to Mariel and she she loves it. It has so many great memories for her. She loves running it. She loves the community, except that then she meets Ned <laughs> on a chance encounter at the Supper Club. And he's there with his family who also runs a restaurant chain. So they're sort of like, you know, like in a rom-com where the two people meet and they like own, you know, sort of like you've got mail, like he owns the big bookstore. She owns a small bookstore. That's sort of like this, like he owns the big restaurant chain and he's rising within this family organization. And she is in love with the supper club and wants to keep it exactly the way it is. And they fall in love, of course, beautifully. And then it's uh, a matter of like, whose dream is going to win? Like, does she give up mm. her dream to allow Ned to keep rising within his family organization and this restaurant chain? Or does he give up his place in his family's legacy to allow mm. Muriel to keep her restaurant? And so that is sort of the, that's the first part of the book. And then there is a tragedy that happens in the middle I like. I don't know if I should spoil it because it is kind of a trigger. There, there is a child yeah. death. I will say that because I know some people that do not want to read about that. Um, and the supper club becomes like their lifeline for them, for their family. It's a way, even at the end, that it brings sort of restoration back to their family after there's been a lot of unforgiveness and separation due to this tragedy but it's just so beautiful he writes women characters so well i don't know how he does it but he does such a good job and i love how he focuses you know there are male characters in the book but his focus is always on the women and how they hold Mm -hmm. up the communities around them Um, and so if you have loved his other books you will love this one um it's out april 18th if you have not read any of his, his other books, you can just pick this one up. You don't need to read in any of the other ones and you'll enjoy it just as much. Mm, I loved it. I just, I so still good. think it'll be potentially in my top 10 of the year because it just holds so much. Like even, yeah. I was so curious how you were going to describe it because the plot is so kind of all over the place a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like it's hard to figure out what's the overarching thread other than the <laughs> supper club itself. And so just because a lot happens, but he handles all of it so beautifully. Yeah. yeah the supper club itself, it's almost a character yeah. in a sense. Yeah. Okay. My next one is Life and Other Love Songs. This is by Anissa Gray. This is her sophomore novel. She wrote The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls, which came out a few years ago, and I really liked it. This one, though, I really loved. And I really thought, oh, this might be the book she was meant to write. So Anissa Gray is a Georgia author. I think she might be from Atlanta. And this is 
one of those books, uh, just like last time, where all I only talked about, I almost talked exclusively about books narrated by three different voices. <laughs> and so this is another uh, book told in three alternating voices, though it is mostly told through the eyes of the women, um, Deborah and Trinity. Deborah's husband, Osro, to me, is the other main character, although we don't always fully get things from his perspective. He certainly looms large in the novel. So on Osro's 37th birthday, he leaves his house after breakfast, and he never comes home. And there's no rhyme nor reason why he would have done that. His daughter and wife, uh, Deborah and Trinity, they cannot figure out what happened to him, why he might have left, or if something horrible happened. They don't know if he was murdered or kidnapped. And so the book really goes back and forth, not only amongst those three voices, but also amongst different timelines, really showing, oh, this is what happened to Osro before he even got married and had a daughter. This is what happened to Deborah before she fell in love with Osro. This is what happened to Trinity when her dad was home. This is what happened to Trinity after her dad left. So it kind of does a really good job of telling the whole drawn out story um, across decades. So the book does take place across a span of years. And as a result, it also is at least in part historical fiction. You kind of learn about Osro moving during the Great Migration and um, what it was like for him having left the South. And I think what I have said it, it's partially could be compared to is The Many Daughters of Afong Moy, where that book takes kind of one ancestor's trauma and sees how it affected the rest of the family. And so Osro's pain and his trauma have an impact on Deborah and on Trinity. It also reminded me of um, Margaret Wilkerson Sexton's On the Rooftop. Um, that book is a lot about music, particularly Black music, and how it kind of saved communities and brought communities together. And in the book, Deborah has a beautiful singing voice, and she pursues singing, but then kind of puts it on the back burner um, when she marries Osro. And then Osro goes missing. And so, you know, she potentially has this opportunity to maybe start singing again. It also, yeah, deals with how we all handle our pain. And so Osro deals with his pain in different ways. Deborah deals with hers by drinking. And um, Trinity deals with hers by moving away from her family. And so I think it just, yeah, has a lot to say about generational pain and trauma and how we handle it and how we hold it. Um, at the same time, I really was invested in all of these characters and in all of their stories and all of the threads kind of holding the story together. So I really liked this book a lot. Um, if you read The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls and you liked it, I think you'll love this. If you didn't like that one, I think that's okay. This is completely different to me. It's telling a completely different kind of story. And I think um, it really showcases Anissa Gray's talent for storytelling. So Life and Other Love Songs by Anissa Gray out next week. Okay, my next one is told in one voice. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> and it's a middle grade novel. This is Lola Weaver's Swims Upstream by Polly Farquhar. And this is out April 25th. And it's a tiny little book. Like it'll take you just like as an adult, a couple hours to read. Not even. <laughs> um, I think it took me like, one and a half, two hours to read, but it was so good. Mm. This was another five-star book for me. I okay. loved it so much because this, it felt like in the vein of like Sharon Creech 
and mm-hmm. like because of Win Dixie, where mm-hmm. you have this child at the heart of it, Lolo, <laughs> who she's going to summer school. She lost her grandfather a couple months ago, and she's upset about it. But as a as a child, she doesn't know how to place these emotions. And so you kind of see her act out a little bit. Like, I mean, one, she's in summer school, but she's in summer school with a teacher who she's pretty sure hates her. (laughs) Like she's just convinced herself that this teacher hates her. And this teacher gives them a writing prompt every day for their journal. And Lola will just like cover her journal and just like pretend to be writing. So she's never actually written in her journal, but like that's the way in which Lolo acts out, if you will. Mm-hmm. Like, she's not a bad kid. She's just like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of inner turmoil happening. Because mm-hmm. Lolo and her grandfather were really tight. And her grandfather used to foster dogs. And the last dog that her grandfather fostered was a dog named Hank, who was scared of doorways. And after <laughs> he passed, it, there Hank was too big a trouble for her elderly grandmother to take care of. And so they sent Hank to live on this farm across um, the, not a river, lake, (laughs) lake, (laughs) but not like the farm that like, as an adult, we think uh, it's a legit farm, (laughs) a real farm, (laughs) a real farm. The dog does not die in this book. Everyone. (laughs) Just a preface. No triggers. An actual farm. And a happy farm. A a literal happy farm. Happy farm. (laughs) And so Lola one day decides her grandmother's upset. And the only way to, to help her grandmother is to get Hank back. Her grandmother does not want Hank back. Her grandmother is actually dealing with this pretty well. But Lolo has convinced herself that her grandmother needs Hank. So Lolo Mm -hmm. takes her kayak by herself and goes across the lake, gets to this farm and meets this little boy who she didn't realize is Noah from her class. And he's the one who's been taking care of Hank. And Noah loves Hank. They have a really good bond. So Noah's kind of like, all right, if you think this is what Hank wants and this is what's best for Hank, then I will help you get Hank back across this lake. So they mm-hmm. set off back across the lake and a bunch of things happen. They run into their teacher who ends up having to help them. Um, <laughs> it was just like, it's one of those stories that just feels so classic and timeless. Mm-hmm. And in a way that like, I think children will love this book as an adult. I loved this book. Lolo is just such a fun character and it never felt heavy. It doesn't feel heavy because really ultimately it's this friendship between Lola, Hank and Noah that happens. Mm-hmm. Has a very happy ending. No one has to worry. <laughs> Delightful. Yeah, it was great. My next book is Hestia Strikes a Match by Christine Grillo. It's out April 18th. Um, this is Christine's debut novel, and I, I see a lot of promise here. I do love an alternative timeline. It is set in an alternate um, 2023. Like, not, multi- not a multiverse thing again, but just, like, it's set in 2023, but you can tell by the setting that it is not our 2023 um, because there is a second American civil war going on. So already I was like grabbed because I was like, yes, tell me more about this. <laughs> but Hestia Harris, she's the main character and her, she's been married. Her husband just left her to go join like a pro union paramilitary group. Like he's so invested in the cause that he leaves her. He's just like not coming back. She joins a dating app. You know, she's just trying to live her life like in the midst of 
um, and a, a civil war. So she starts to <laughs> wade into the dating world. And it's funny because she's trying not to get matched or to flirt with people who like are Confederate sympathizers. <laughs> so I don't know. I just love the juxtaposition of like dating apps, I'm sure are insanely difficult anyway, but like set it in this fictional civil war and you're trying to figure out like, is this person a Confederate <laughs> sympathizer? I just, I really like that plot device. Um, her parents are moving to one of the States that have decided to secede um, she decides to leave her career in writing. She doesn't feel like it's safe as a journalist anymore. And she thinks like, you know what, I'm just going to work at like a retirement facility because this is a quote. I told myself it would be a safe workplace because not even a Confederate would bomb a facility full of the elderly. Right. <laughs> I <don't> know, <laughs> that was funny. Um, it does definitely feel like a, a book of satire about our current state of affairs, like politically in this country and um, how divided we are because they do kind of talk about like how the civil war started and, you know, that everyone should have seen the signs and it's like the stuff that is kind of, kind of currently happening in our world. So it feels a little bit like satire, but it, it follows her. Like I said, she's just trying to live a normal life. She's trying to figure out like, where can I go out to eat? Well, let me pull up my safe zones app and see where a safe place is to go eat. Or, you know, she has this other app on her phone called the conflicted app and it gives her like, like war updates every day. <laughs> just these things that are like, um, it's like, it's got a funny cast of characters, the people she meets at the elderly home, they decide to do an oral history project. And so she walks them through this oral history project. So there's a lot of like their stories in there as well about their lives and how they got here. But <laughs> I said, it's like, if you took the, the background of the hunger games, but you like, you just juxtapose someone's life on it. That's just like trying to live a normal life and just have fun and like works at a elderly facility. Like it sort of has that, like, you know, like look around, like the world is kind of falling apart, but also like, I'm just trying to go to the grocery store and you know, I got to still buy food for my family. So it is, um, yeah. it's not a very long book. I think people will enjoy the humor of it. It's sort of dark humor, you know, but um, yeah, it was just, it snagged me right away. And I think people will like it. I am so curious about this one because, as I said in Lit Lunch this week, it feels like a book about what we all just lived through to some yeah. extent. Like tr trying say. to trying to figure out what restaurant can I safely yeah. go to? Weren't we all just googling that in 2021? Yeah. Like where, exactly. where where can I safely eat? Is there outdoor seating? Like yeah, <laughs> um, you know. So I I think it feels so timely, and I can't tell. Although it sounds upon your description that it's funny and like would be handled well. But at first I was reading mm -hmm. the description. I was like, I don't know if this is too close to home or not. Like, I can't, I can't tell yeah, if I want to read about a book about this or not. You know, everyone it's sort of like, they've, it's like all of us, if we reached the point in the pandemic when you kind of were just like rolling your eyes and stuff and you were just like, well, I, I yeah. have to do this, you know? So I think they yeah. sort of, the, all the characters seem like they're like, yeah, I mean, it's happening, but like, you know, you want to meet me at this bar <laughs> for a drink. Like it's not a big deal. Yeah. So they just yeah. like it's kind of compartmentalize that what's happening like out there and it's different what's mm -hmm. happening in their lives. Okay, I might have to try that one. So, okay, my last book is If We're Being Honest. This is by Kat Shook. It releases on April 18th. It's a debut novel by a Southern writer. Kat Shook is from Georgia, but now she lives in New York. I feel like I love these books set in Brooklyn neighborhoods or in the Upper West Side. I'm thinking of 
pretty much Emma Straub's entire backlist. I'm thinking of The Sweet Spots by Amy Popel. Um, and I love all of those books. And I love reading about New York and its quirky neighborhoods. But it was delightful to read a book about really quirky, complicated, slightly dysfunctional families and people, but set in the South. And so if you like Emma Straub, but you're ready for a change of scenery, I think this would be really great for you. So basically, we've got the Williams family. They live in a small town in Georgia. And I also selfishly just liked that it was a small town. And I think she said, I want to say she said South or Central Georgia. It just felt like even books in Georgia, set in Georgia, are set in Atlanta. And mm-hmm. it's like, okay, that's great. Or but Savannah what about the rest or of us? something. Like yeah. Like, what if, you, what if we just live in the middle of... <laughs> pecan trees like what if that's where we live like could we write pecan a book about that <laughs> well, well i was trying to think like what is around here it's just fields yeah. like yeah. what if we just lived where our air smells like smoke because of prescribed burns like mm-hmm. what if a beautiful spring day is ruined by smoke can we write about that <laughs> like i just so i felt like cat shook knows from whence we come and the williams family lives in this small town in georgia and their patriarch has died their patriarch jerry and so the whole family of course comes back home. Many of them already live in this small town. And we get all of these different characters, um, including Jerry's wife, including his adult children, and including the adult grandchildren. And those adult grandchildren, this kind of set of cousins, is really who we spend the most time with. Um, But I was amazed at how Kat Shook made all of the characters fully-fledged, multidimensional, despite there being quite a few of them. It's It's a pretty large family. I really don't want to spoil too much for anyone. I will just say that at Jerry's funeral, we are given kind of a twist to the story that this family has told themselves about themselves. And Mm. there is fallout from that. So the book is set over the course of one week. Um, We start with Jerry's funeral and then we end with a neighborhood wedding. And so I loved that kind of bookends of those two big events. Um, And the book takes place over a week as this family kind of grapples not only with Jerry's death, but also with these kind of family secrets that come out. It's deeply funny. Great. If you were a fan of This Is Where I Leave You, I would highly recommend this book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I can't wait to see what she does next. It's If We're Being Honest by Kat Shook out on April 18th. I keep thinking of like Death at a Funeral. Have you seen Mm -hmm. that movie? No, I never saw that. Should I see it? Oh, you should. Uh, Mr. Darcy or Tom Wamsgams is also in that movie. (laughs) Okay. Wow. He really makes the rounds, doesn't he? He really does. It was great. Um, Okay. I saved this book for last on purpose (laughs) because I'm so excited about it. (laughs) It's In the Lives of Puppets by TJ Klune. You guys, it's finally coming out. Well, at the end of April. I'm sorry, everyone. It's April 25th. You (laughs) still have to wait. But it's definitely worth it. This one, for me, gave more House in the Cerulean Sea vibes than Under the Whispering Door. House in the Cerulean Sea was kind of like the uplifting book we all needed in 2020. And also feels Mm -hmm. like TJ's like rise to fame. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He put out that book and everyone knew his name. Yeah. Um, And then you had Under the Whispering Door and everyone sobbed um, and grieved (laughs) together because it was towards the end of a pandemic and we all also needed that. (laughs) And now we have (laughs) In the Lives of Puppets. And it's really this like, it's it's more fantasy than either of those two, for sure. Mm-hmm. This is set in like the woods where this father, Giovanni, who's a robot, but also this inventor lives um, with his son, Victor, who's a human, but also an inventor because, you know, he follows his father's footsteps. 
And they have like the scrapyard nearby that like Victor will grab scraps from. And like, he's in the process of building a heart that can replace Giovanni's if anything happens so that his father Mm -hmm. can like still live. But they have these like two quirky little robots that live with them. One's a nurse um, who's extremely dry and sarcastic and brings a lot of humor to the book. And then you have this little vacuum robot, like think Roomba style. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, Who is adorable and both easily excited and easily scared at the same time, (laughs) all the time. But Victor one day goes out into the scrapyard and he finds this robot, Hap, who he never finds living robots out there. And he rescues Hap. In order to do so, he has to put the heart that he built Giovanni into Hap. But doing so alerted the robot race that they were living there. And so mm-hmm. they steal Giovanni and this group of ragtag individuals has to go after Giovanni. I feel like TJ Klune does the best found family trope I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's one of the best things he brings to the literary world Mm. is like you feel like you're a part of the family just reading the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. Uh, This one, I think they comped it to like Pinocchio meets Mm -hmm. like Wally. To me, (laughs) (laughs) to me, this gives like um, Bicentennial Man with Robin Williams vibes. (laughs) Wow. I had not thought about that movie in probably 30 years. Throwback. It's Mm -hmm. all I think about during this movie or Mm -hmm. this book. It played like a movie. Um, But they like have to venture to this like big city called the City of Electric Dreams. And I was like, oh, it's like, what did they call it in Bicentennial Man? It wasn't Manhattan, but it was something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been I a while remember. since I've seen that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a very long time. <laughs> um, Bicentennial Man, I would say, is much more sad uh, than this mm-hmm. book is. <laughs> Good um, to know. But if you love T.J. Klune and anything he's written, you'll you'll love this book just like you did everything else. Okay. Good. I'm just curious, like, why is it not called like the lives of robots instead of the lives of puppets? Curious minds are wondering. You know, after I read the book, I probably could have told you why. Um, <laughs> but but <not> currently, <laughs> well, just get back to me, or I'll have to. I legitimately read this book in one sitting. I yeah. couldn't put it down. Okay. It was so oh, that's good. Nice. Yeah, but yeah. it there was like there was something. It, it made a, sense. The title made yeah, sense. I gotcha. I'm yeah. sure it did. He wouldn't have called it that. <laughs> you for should nothing. read it to find out. Oh, I will. I will. <laughs> I'm a great salesman. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You read it. You tell me what it's about. Okay. You tell me. <laughs> okay. My last book is Small Mercies by Dennis Lehane. It comes out on April the 25th. Again, I don't think this is necessarily up my alley, but I think it, it turned out to be. So um, you may know Dennis's other works. He has written Gone Baby Gone, Mystic River, Shutter Island. All have been turned into movies. Um, In fact, this book already has a deal with Apple Plus to make a series Hmm. based on it. So get in now, order it, read it, and then you can watch (laughs) the series when it comes out. It is based in Boston in the summer of 1974. Um, And, you know, he just describes it so well. Like, you can just imagine, like, the heat... Like, you know, it's, it's sweltering, it's Boston. Um, the schools have been ordered to integrate like via court order mm-hmm. and no one is happy about it. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of tension there already. 
And our main character is Mary Pat Finnessy, which is like a great like Boston Irish name. (laughs) And she is doing the best she can to make ends meet. Of course, she's kind of down and out. You know, her gas gets turned off, electricity gets turned off. Her teenage daughter, Jules, goes missing one night. And um, Mary Pat works at like a, again, she works like a retirement a facility, two books with that. So sorry, but um, <laughs> she has a, a coworker who, in the same night, her son is mysteriously killed in a subway train accident, and they don't know how, and they can't find jewels. And so both of these mothers, one white, one black, is dealing with the disappearance and murder, you know, their child, and so they're dealing with mm-hmm. it in different ways. And then there's this racial tension in Boston about integrating the schools and the two camps there. And as Mary Pat starts to look for answers about what happened to Jules that night or where she could be, she starts to bump up against the Irish mafia, the Irish mob, I guess, in Boston. And they're not happy about that. And she gets a lot of pushback from them to stop asking uh, questions about Jules' disappearance. So um, I do enjoy this book. These kinds of books almost like the last summer on state street where you just have Mm -hmm. that summer, you know, you get a glimpse Mm -hmm. of these families in this time period. And I really do love that because you're all in, you're invested because you know, it's not going to last forever. It's just going to last this one little summer. And um, there's, there's a lot of non Susie approved language in this book. So (laughs) maybe if you are a Nancy, a Susie reader and you prefer not to read a lot of profanity, as you can imagine, like, it's like watching a Ben Affleck movie, you know, but you're like reading yeah. it. So <laughs> just yeah. imagine what kind of language they might be using there. <laughs> but um, there's already a lot of rave reviews for this book. And I have a feeling it's going to be one that whether in the book form or when it comes out in series is going to going to spur a lot of good conversations just about mm-hmm. what happened and also about, you know, busing and, and schools and things like that. So the author said he's been waiting his whole life to write a book about busing in Boston. Cause he's like busing. Mm. The story of busing is the story of Boston, which I think is a fascinating mm. quote. So I'm um, such a good book. I'm super intrigued by that. Cause I've seen a lot of his movies, like a lot mm-hmm. of those movies you named, but I've never yeah. read one of his books. And I think dad did and liked it. I can't remember. This seems like something your dad would like. Yeah. But I, I think I would like to try it as well. Okay, so those are the books that we are looking forward to to releasing in April. Don't forget, you can shop on our website. That's bookshelfthomasville.com and use the code new release please at checkout for 10% off your order of any of today's titles. This week, what I'm reading is brought to you by the 102nd Annual Rose Show and Festival here in Thomasville, Georgia. Come visit us for the weekend of April 28th and 29th and experience the flowers, fun, food, and shopping in beautiful Thomasville. Plan your spring visit at thomasvillega.com. Rose Show is coming up and I am so excited. It's one of my mm-hmm. favorite times of the year. There's something so vibrant about our city and all of the visitors who come for the Rose Show, which we talked about on last week's episode. We talked about actually walking into the tents and getting to see all the pretty flowers, the Rose Parade, the street dance, which I mistakenly said was on Saturday. It's on Friday night, everybody. Nobody mm-hmm. panic. Saturday night <laughs> is fireworks. Friday night is dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a whole weekend's worth long of events. I am curious. People have heard about my favorite things, but since y'all are here, I'm curious what your favorite parts of Rose Show Weekend are. Erin, what's your favorite part? 
I do like going in the tent where they have all the roses. Uh, I mean, you've Mm -hmm. never seen such beautiful roses as these amateur gardeners grow and then come in to compete for this prize. They're they're fascinating. And the smell is, of course, amazing. Last year was my first year to go in the rose tent because it's always right by the bookshelf. But for mm-hmm. whatever reason, I don't know, bookshelf life, I've never gone in. And last year I got to go in the rose tent and then the orchid room. And I I just couldn't believe the beauty that people yeah. had crafted and cultivated. I can barely water my fern. I yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just was so, I was so impressed. Um, Olivia, what's your favorite part? Um, my favorite part is always the parade. Thomasville puts on some of the best parades. For sure. Of any They're small so fun. town. They're mm-hmm. so great. <laughs> They're so and delightful. Unlike <laughs> yeah. Yes, everybody supports everybody. it. Do you know Chris Butterworth will be he will be mortified that I'm saying this, but my dad, we brought them to <laughs> Rose Parade one year. And my dad, this is the kind of stuff my dad loves. Like my dad used to take us to all kinds of festivals. I've been to Rattlesnake Roundup. I've been to mm-hmm. Mule Day. Like I've been to all I've been to Swine Time. That's right. Lots of <laughs> Southern festivals. Olivia's making awful faces. I've been to them all. Yeah. Um, so we brought my dad to Rose show and the Rose Parade. And I was like, Dad, how'd you like the parade? And he, and he was joking. He swears he was joking. And I know that he was. But it's like a line that Jordan and I say to each other all the time. He goes, eh, you've seen one parade, you've seen them all. <laughs> <laughs> and it's how so unlike you, my Chris? dad. <laughs> it's so <laughs> unlike my dad. And the truth is, the Rose Parade really isn't like every... Like, I think no. it's really fun. The marching bands are great. The floats are great. So yeah, I'm with you, Olivia. I love a parade. This week, I'm listening to The Golden Spoon by Jessa Maxwell. Olivia, what are you reading? I am reading Drowning by TJ Newman. <gasps> I'm jealous. It's I know. So good. Me too. <laughs> uh, okay. It's so good. Erin, what are you reading? I'm listening to Hestia Strikes a Match by Christine Grillo. Thank you again to our sponsor, the 102nd Annual Rose Show and Festival here in Thomasville, Georgia. Plan your upcoming visit and come see a really great parade at thomasvillega.com. From the Front Porch is a weekly podcast production of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in Thomasville, Georgia. You can follow The Bookshelf's daily happenings on Instagram at bookshelfteville, and all the books from today's episode can be purchased online through our store website, bookshelfthomasville.com. A full transcript of today's episode can be found at fromthefrontporchpodcast.com. Special thanks to Studio D Podcast Production for production of From the Front Porch and for our theme music, which sets the perfect warm and friendly tone for our Thursday conversations. Our executive producers of today's episode are Donna Hetchler, Cami Tidwell, Chantal C., Kate O'Connell, Nicole Marcy, Wendy Jenkins, Lori Johnson. Thank you all for your support of From the Front Porch. If you'd like to support From the Front Porch, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Your input helps us make the show even better and reach new listeners. All you have to do is open up the podcast app on your phone, look for From the Front Porch, scroll down until you see write a review and tell us what you think. Or if you're so inclined, you can support us over on Patreon, where we have three levels of support, Front Porch Friends, Book Club Companions, and Bookshelf Benefactors. Each level has an amazing number of benefits like bonus content, access to live events, discounts, and giveaways. Just go to patreon.com forward slash from the front porch. We're so grateful for you, and we look forward to meeting back here next week.